0: When I, was a kid, when I was a kid, futurists had us imagining that one day we would all be getting around in jetpacks and in one-person helicopters, and for some reason we were all going to be wearing silver suits. This did not happen. But when my kids were kids, the talk was how someday we would all be getting around in driverless cars. And now it seems that may actually be about to happen in some form or other, as the kinks get worked out, heralding in an era, if the dream proves true, of safer and cheaper and more convenient transport. But does that dream, if it's even possible, have a dark side also? Could the driverless car hit the environment hard? Could it put masses of people out of work? Could it fail to be as safe as promised? Well, there are arguments on all sides of these questions, which is why we think They have the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, all hail the driverless car. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against that resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Adam Smith Society's 2019 national meeting in New York City will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. A reminder to our audience, if you haven't done it yet, we want to ask you to cast your pre-debate vote to tell us where you stand on the resolution, which again is all hail the driverless car. Go to, use your phone, your mobile device to go to the URL iq2us.org forward slash vote iq2us.org forward slash vote, you'll be prompted to cast for the resolution, against the resolution, or to declare yourself undecided. And we're gonna close that off in just a couple of minutes. And I wanna remind you now that we'll have you vote after, the res- after you've heard all the arguments, and it will be the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winners. All right, let's meet our debaters. First on the team arguing for the resolution, all hail the driverless car. Please welcome Amitai ben Amitai, uh, you are currently the vice president of Autonomous Vehicles at SAFE. That's a nonprofit in D.C. Uh, you're working with state and local and federal governments to better understand uh, and to positively engage uh, driverless cars and advanced uh, transportation technology. Amitai, welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's great to be here. Thank you for it's having great me. It's great to have you. And your partner, please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Chris Ermson. Chris, you are a known name, truly a player in this field, and by that I mean in the self-driving vehicle industry. After 15 years uh, uh, at work in this, you helped to develop Google's self-driving car program. You are now uh, the CEO and co-founder of Aurora. Great to have you here, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's an an honor to be here. It's a pleasure to have you as well. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the resolution, all hail the driverless car. And of course, we have two debaters arguing against this resolution. First, please welcome everyone, Meredith Broussard. (laughs) Meredith, uh, you work where artificial intelligence crosses lines with journalism. Uh, You were once developing software for AT&T, Bell Labs, and MIT. You now teach data journalism at New York University. Meredith, thanks for joining us on Intelligence Squared.
1: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: It's great to have you as well. And Meredith's partner, ladies and gentlemen, Ashley Nunes. Ashley, you're a senior researcher at Harvard and at MIT. Uh, You're an expert in transportation safety, in regulatory policy, in behavioral economics. You write extensively, you lecture globally on the changes facing the transportation industry. We're so glad to have you here, Ashley. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. So here they are, our four debaters ready to get started when Intelligence Squared U.S. continues. And now we continue. (laughs) And so to the debate, we go in three rounds. Our first round will be opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each. Amitai, you can make your way to center stage. Speaking first for the resolution, all hail the driverless car, here is Amitai ben Regulation Expert and Vice President of Autonomous Vehicles at SAFE. Ladies and gentlemen, Amitai Bin
2: Good afternoon. I ask you today to join me in affirming that science and technology are essential to improving our life and our society. To advance and create a better future, We must pursue deeper understanding of nature and embrace the potential of technology. We are lucky to be alive today. My life and your life are far better off than if we were born 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Life expectancy today in the US at birth is approaching 80 years. 100 years ago, that was in its 40s. 200 years ago, you could expect to live to your 30s when you were born. Globally, 200 years ago, Almost half of all children born died before the age of five. Today, that's under, 10, that's under 4%, and in the U.S., that's under 1%. 200 years ago, 95% of all people in the world lived in what we would consider dire poverty, under t- what the equivalent of what is today $2 a day. Today, that's 10% and dropping, and that means that we have room to go on all these fronts, and there's a lot more for us to do, But even the poorest people today have a higher standard of living than the wealthiest members of generations past. Our improved health and our economic prosperity is being driven by scientific discovery and technological development. A healthy society is one that has has a vision for the future and invests in bringing that vision to fruition. Rejecting scientific advancement brings stagnation and ultimately irrelevance as a society. Of course, technology doesn't by itself deploy clean energy. It doesn't vaccinate children. It doesn't itself build bridges, literally or metaphorically. But it gives us tools to do so. It gives us tools to build that future. And it is the people who compose our societies who make the choices to deploy those technologies and apply it to our problems to build that better tomorrow. And so long as scientific discovery continues, that is a task that does not end. And that brings me to the self-driving car, which is an incredible innovation that is being brought forth by the confluence of fundamental breakthroughs in a broad range of scientific disciplines. Self-driving cars are so exciting because they offer us a fresh opportunity to address some intractable problems that transportation policy and technologists have tried for decades to address. That gives us the opportunity to improve roadway safety, to improve the accessibility of our transportation system, to reduce fossil fuel use, to improve congestion, and reduce inequality in access to transportation. We have these problems because we cannot live without the freedom of movement. Travel provides us with the economic opportunities to support our life, and meeting people meets our deep needs as social beings in order to to meet our social needs. Studies show that people who cannot move, who do not have freedom of movement, have greater rates of depression and have worse health outcomes. Our our lives are enriched by the fact that we can travel and we can be more exposed to other cultures. That's why, since the invention of the automobile, Americans travel 50 times further each year than they did before, and we get all sorts of opportunities because of that. Because we need to travel so much, we pay the cost. We pay with our money, we pay with our time, we pay with our very lives. So we're going to hear from my uh, teammate Chris Ermsen, who has been building self-driving cars for I believe it's almost 20 years and is literally the world's leading expert on building those systems, about why self-driving cars mean so much to our, why they offer such a great opportunity to reduce the toll on our lives, on our health, and on congestion. But first I want to talk about the disability community. Our transportation system isn't accessible. There are two million people with a disability who never leave their home because they cannot drive. Despite there being such a large constituency, there are 15 million people who have difficulty accessing transportation because of their inability to drive. Every mode of transportation is less accessible to people with disabilities. I want to tell you I want to share with you the story of my friend Lindsay, who I've worked with in Washington, D.C. Lindsay is legally blind, and she cannot drive. She moved from car-dependent Texas to Washington, D.C. because the other transportation opportunities in D.C. let her work and let her have a full social social life. She became inspired by the potential of self-driving cars to improve mobility for people like her and she has launched a policy initiative within the Department of Labor to use self-driving cars to help people with disabilities get to work. And she's just getting started with things like this. So because of her vision and her tireless work, self-driving cars will help people with disabilities work, maintain their dignity, and better integrate into their communities. But we cannot move forward without the help of you and other members of the public. So when I say, all hail the self-driving car, I don't mean hail like you hail a leader. I mean you should actively step forward, just like you might hail a taxi, and use your efforts and your strength to help summon this future into into being. So I ask that we all collectively hail the self-driving car. Thank you, Amitai Ben-Noon.
0: And that, of course, is the resolution, All Hail the Driverless Car, and here to make her opening statement against this resolution, please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, journalist and author, Meredith Broussard.
1: Hi, everybody. Thank you. I wanna start by talking about the first time that I rode in a self-driving car, which was back in 2007. I was writing a story about the Grand Challenge, the DARPA Grand Challenge, and I heard about these, uh, these kids who were building a self-driving car to drive it through the desert, and I thought, oh, that sounds like a fantastic story, and so I went to ride in it uh, in order to write my story. And I got into the car, and I thought I was going to vomit I thought I was going to die and then I thought I was going to do both at the same time. So what the car did was it was in an empty parking lot in a Boeing, uh, at a Boeing plant in South Philadelphia and the car had to steer on a big curve through the parking lot and it headed straight at a giant cement pylon and it failed to detect this giant cement pylon and we almost ran into it, inches away from running into it. And it did not inspire confidence in me. And so in 2007, I thought, oh, well, you know, this sounds nifty, but uh, these engineers are saying, oh, it's not gonna be be available, this technology, for five years. And I thought, eh, I don't know if it's ever gonna be, and I kind of forgot about it. So fast forward in 2016, when I started hearing again that self-driving cars are five years in the future. And I wondered, did they actually fix all of the problems that I observed in 2007? And the answer is no. And in fact, advocates for self-driving cars have been saying that they're coming soon since at least 1991. And so with all of these delays and with all of these futures that have failed to materialize, I think it's time to ask, will self-driving cars ever work And I would argue that the answer is no. So let me tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from in this this conversation. I started my career as a computer scientist and then I quit to become a journalist. And I have a new book out called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. It's about the inner workings and the outer limits of technology. So I've spent the past couple of years thinking about why there's a really big gap between what people imagine technology can do and what technology can actually do. And so the self-driving car is a really good place to examine the gap between imagination and reality. I think we need to start by talking about what is artificial intelligence because we hear a lot about how uh, self-driving cars work based on AI. There are a lot of misconceptions around artificial intelligence. A really easy definition that I like to use is that artificial intelligence is a subfield of computer science, the same way that algebra is a subfield of mathematics. And inside artificial intelligence, we have other subfields like machine learning, buzzwords like neural networks. And there's a little linguistic confusion around these terms because when you say artificial intelligence, you say machine learning, it sounds like there's a little brain in the computer, right? And it kind of triggers all of our Hollywood imagination about what computers can do and the computers that are going to take over the world and, you know, all of that really entertaining Hollywood stuff that is totally imaginary. And so this... Confusion extends to self-driving cars. When we think about the artificial intelligence inside self-driving cars, people kind of assume that the car is thinking. It's not thinking, all right? It's subroutines, it's computing, which is a really important distinction. And the AI inside autonomous vehicles is very, very impressive. It is an amazing feat of engineering. It is not safe, but it is extremely impressive. So let's look at one of the ways that the artificial intelligence fails. The thing that the car needs to do when it comes up to, say, a stop sign is it needs to take in sensor information from the world, identify that there's a stop sign, and then trigger a subroutine to slowly come to a halt at the line in front of the stop sign. And the problem is that the image recognition algorithms that are inside the car are very brittle. They're very easy to defeat. So if I were to do something simple like take a sparkly unicorn sticker and put it onto the stop sign, then the car would fail to recognize the stop sign as a stop sign and would go through the intersection and cause an accident. Another thing that engineers are not talking enough about is the environment inside a self-driving car. So think about the way that harassment works inside rideshare vehicles now. We know that women are routinely harassed inside rideshare vehicles by other passengers. And one of the reasons that I personally appreciate public transportation is that there is a train conductor, there is a bus driver, there's somebody with moral authority that is recognized inside that space. So if we take away the bus driver, we take away the moral authority, we take away a degree of safety. And I don't know that that's something that we want to do as a society. I'm also gonna ask a provocative question, which is who will clean autonomous vehicles? I talked to a lot of taxi drivers, and uh, what they said across the board was that, People are kind of gross in taxis.
0: Meredith, I hate to stop you there. But oh, it's, but it's a really good point yeah. to stop that, actually. Okay. I think people are going because you're out of time. Okay. So thank you Excellent. very much, Meredith. I'm Bizarre. out of time.
1: My question is, who will clean them? Lots of people get car sick. Think about that. <laughs>
0: So a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. Debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this resolution. All hail the driverless car. You've heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. You can make your way to the lectern. Please welcome to debate in support of the resolution, Aurora, co-founder and CEO, Chris Ermson.
3: Thanks for being here, what an honor. I, I get to stand before you and argue, argue on behalf of a technology that I think will have a profound impact uh, in this century and beyond. It's one of the most transformational things we'll experience in our life, lifetimes. For the last 15 years, this has been my life. Uh, this is technology that's what I've committed my career to. I was there in the desert the first year uh, when we were challenged to drive 150 miles across the desert and that year we drove seven and then basically burst into flames. Um, And so, you know, no, we weren't quite ready yet, but a year and a half later we came back and we had six vehicles finish the challenge that year. And so we got on our soapbox and we said, this technology is coming, it's getting better faster. We then had the third grand challenge, and this time the idea was to drive around an abandoned airbase. Uh, and some brave souls, uh, some stunt drivers, actually got in vehicles and interacted with the cars on the road that day. Uh, and they were moving around and creating traffic. And after 60 miles, five vehicles finished uh, finished the challenge that day. And again, we got on our soapboxes. Now it wasn't without excitement. Um, One big truck drove into a building, Uh, you know, two other cars bumped into each other. But this was more than a decade ago, and this technology is advancing rapidly since then. Uh, For me, I've seen the first time that a blind man rode in a self-driving car by himself through a city. I've also seen the first time the police pulled over a self-driving car. Uh, and, you know, and, and the need for us to, uh, to explain what's happening with the technology of the community. And that's why I'm here today to argue for self-driving cars and that we should hail them. And really the argument comes down to a combination of safety, convenience, and accessibility. And let's talk about safety first. Worldwide, 1.3 million people die on our roads. In the time that it'll take me to give these opening remarks today, this six minutes, 15 people will die. That's something we should do something about. If we bring that closer to home, in America, about 40,000 people die on America's roads every year. That's the equivalent of four 737 MAX 8s falling out of the sky every, uh, four times a week, I should say, every week. Where's the outrage? The status quo is incredibly broken and we have the opportunity to do something about this. The good news is that 96% of these accidents are due to human error, people making mistakes behind the wheel. Now, in general, humans are really quite good drivers. The failure rate is something like 1.15 per 100 million miles, but that's still a shockingly large number. And the reason why we have uh, these accidents is due to a combination of people drinking, being distracted, and being tired. Now, our opponents might argue that what we should do is we should tell people not to do that, right? Hey, don't be tired in the car, you know, don't check your cell phone. The challenge there is the prohibition just doesn't work. You know, the US dabbled in this for a little while and it you know, went really well. Um, and so we need to find a way to bring another solution to bear. And in this case, the solution is tantalizingly close, and that is self-driving driverless vehicles. But let's ask the question, why do people do these things in the car? Fundamentally, people are really bad at estimating risk and their ability. Uh, you know, it turns out that more than 80% of Americans believe they are above average drivers. So think about that for a moment. And then the second is that time is precious, right? It's the one thing you can't really buy more of. And so, when we have the opportunity to pull a cell phone from our pocket and indulge in something fun in in the midst of the tedium of driving, we do so. And at great risk to ourselves and the public. So, again, this technology can help with this, right? That is its purpose, is to relieve the tedium of driving. For me, I used to, uh, I'm not really a car guy. It turns out, up until about two years ago, uh, I would commute to work on my bike, you know, I live in the Bay Area in California, so it's not really that heroic, it's beautiful weather, uh, and then my wife said, you had to get a car. You have to get a car. And so I did, I bought a convertible, uh, and one day I had the moment that people talk about. I was out on the 280, which is one of the most beautiful bits of freeway anywhere in the country, the sun was just kind of at that magic night, I had the roof down, I had my music playing, and I was like, this is it, you know, I get it, people like driving. Um, I, I, I finally had that moment and then I got to San Francisco uh, and it was cloudy and somebody had crashed uh, and the traffic instead of for the first 30 miles that took me about 30 minutes, the next 10 miles took me an hour and I was like, ah, my life work is not wasted. Um, so the, you know, there's, there's a very human cost to this. Uh, it turn- and, then, and there's a huge economic cost as well. It turns out the average American commutes about 55 minutes a day. There's about 128 m- million people who do that. If you multiply that by the average hourly wage in the US, which I looked up today, is about $28, that means we are spending $3 billion a day to have the privilege of commuting and hating life and having some jerk in a BMW cut you off. Uh, so anyone who says they like driving, doesn't enjoy commuting and we can fix that for them. Imagine those people coming home at the end of the day instead of cursing about the experience they just had, having had the chance to use that time productively or had that chance to read a book or relax or engage in a debate. It could have been a lot more fun and a lot better place. and I'm sure uh, millions of uh, partners would enjoy that. So for me, from my perspective, this really isn't uh, really, the argument shouldn't be, do we hail the driverless car? It's, do we really accept the cost and the loss of life accepted with the status quo? And if we don't, then this is the technology to deliver that. So we should all vote in favor of this. Thank you. Thank you, Chris armstrong And again, the resolution is, all hail the driverless car.
0: And here to make his statement against the resolution is Ashley Nunes, senior researcher at Harvard Law and MIT. Ashley Nunes, ladies and gentlemen.
4: So my colleague, uh, Meredith, gave a very eloquent introduction as to why the technology is unsafe, why it doesn't work. But let's assume for a second she's wrong. I don't think she is, but let's assume she is. Let's say we could get the technology to be perfect. Who stands to benefit the most from driverless technology? Who is dying on America's roads? If we look at road fatalities over the last 20 or 30 years, there has, in fact, been a drop um, in terms of the volume of people that are dying on the roads. But it turns out that that drop has not been uniformly shared across the socioeconomic spectrum. Sam Harper, a wonderful epidemiologist at McGill, has done some work on this, and what he has found is truly worrying. If you are an American with a college degree or higher, the chances of you dying on the road has gone down over the last 3 decades. But if you have less than a college degree, the chances of you dying on America's roads has actually gone up. And one reason why is because less educated people generally tend to make more money less money, excuse me. And as a consequence of that, they are more likely to own older vehicles. These are vehicles that lack advanced safety features, things like rear-facing cameras, blind-spot detectors, automated braking. Put simply, if there's one group of Americans that stands to benefit from driverless car technology, it's poor people. Which raises a very interesting question. Can poor people actually afford it? And we've crunched the numbers, and what we have found is that they cannot. In fact, on a per-mile basis, riding in a driverless taxi would be at least three times higher than owning an older vehicle today. Three times higher. This raises a very interesting question. While driverless car technology may, in fact, have the potential to improve public health, to save lives, Whose lives are we actually saving? I'll stop there. John. Thank you, Thank you oh,
0: Ashley. I get to, to breathe. Okay. Thank you, Ashley Nunes. And now that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now we move on to round two. And round two is where the debaters address... One, Can I can I do that again? um, Because it'll sound so odd if I stop and everybody's chatting. uh, So for just for the podcast, so bear with me as I do one more time um, and not to giggle. That concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared US debate, where our resolution is All Hail the Driverless Car. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and also take questions from me and from you, our live audience here at the Adam Smith Society in New York City. The team arguing for the resolution, Amitai Benun and Uh, Chris Amason. They presented a a very optimism-infused argument, uh, literally saying that we're lucky to be alive because of the things that technology has delivered to our generation. And they talk about driverless cars as an incredible innovation uh, which will solve a variety of problems, including issues of safety and accessibility and climate change and uh, even income inequality. They put a special emphasis on how it will solve uh, challenges faced by the disability community by giving them a chance to get out where now they can. They talk about freedom of movement itself as a good in itself. uh, And they also uh, make the argument that it is life enhancing just to be able to take your hands off the wheel and have this thing move along so that you can do something else, whether it's to read or work. And that basically the technology is moving so forward that we are now, quote, tantalizingly close to the realization of this vision. The team arguing against the resolution says, no, we're not tantalizingly close. They're arguing that the promise of artificial intelligence uh, has been rather hyped, um, that the basic problem with a driverless car is that they are computers, and computing is not thinking, and driving needs thinking. The promise is hollow, they say. The algorithms are easy to defeat. And they also talk about Uh, the uh, arrival of uh, driverless cars is actually increasing income inequality, as the point was made uh, near the end there. And finally, um, they talk about the environment inside the cars and talk about the absence of a moral agent such as a driver or a bus driver. And I had to cut off uh, Meredith when she was making her kind of home run point, the surprising point that if somebody gets car sick in a driverless car, who's going to clean the thing up? Okay, so that sums up the arguments that we heard from both sides, and I wanna dig into some of that. Um, Starting, I think, with the basic feasibility question. On the one hand, uh, um, Meredith, you were saying that it's just never gonna happen. You used the word never, and uh, Chris, you said it's tantalizingly close. So, defend tantalizingly.
3: Defend tantalizingly. Defend close. It's it's, (laughs) it's a good word. I think it was on the SATs. Um, <laughs> How close so, are we? So I, I think you will see within the next five years, uh, small scale de- deployments of this technology. Uh, we're seeing the seeds of this out in the world today. So uh, my former team uh, at Google has deployed vehicles where they were driving ground with no operator in them. They're not yet ready for full-scale deployment and they're doing the right thing and being very safe, safe and thoughtful in that deployment. But we can see this technology on the road. Our team engages with it every day. And I think um, probably one of the strong points is just the, the amount of economic investment in the space. Some very smart people are investing significant dollars behind this technology to push it forward. So, Meredith, um, you're you're making
0: the exact
3: counter-argument. You're saying it'll never
0: get there. So what's your response to Chris's point just now?
1: So I I actually used to believe that uh, the self-driving cars were close. Uh, And then I went in and I read the code and I read the training data. I looked at the training data and I realized that a lot of the kind of everyday issues that we cope with as drivers are not represented in the training data and are not accounted for in the code. So I think about weird things that happen when you're driving. So my personal weirdest thing that ever happened while I was driving was I was going down a twisty road in Vermont and all of a sudden there was a moose just standing in the middle of the road just looking at me and I thought, wow, It never before occurred to me that I was going to have to reckon with a moose when I was driving. And so I could very quickly update my mental model that, oh, yes, there are uh, there are going to be moose in Vermont, and there are going to be large mammals that I'm going to have to navigate around as a driver. Plural
0: moose, that would be. The plural, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so let me take your point to, so, to, 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 Chris, so your opponent is saying there are just going to be things that the software will never be able to work with.
3: Yeah, um, I, and I think there's... So may, if I may, this, sure. this, this is the, the thing that I actually yeah. do know a little bit about. Um, so, uh, both being Canadian, we're familiar with, with Mies, uh, <laughs> and, and working in the space. Um, it, so so I, I think that this long-tail argument or rare events, uh, I think there's two ways that I think about that as maybe not as big a deal as others do. One is for people who don't spend their life thinking about this technology, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that it doesn't occur to you. But when you have teams of people that have been working on this for a decade, right, we've thought pretty hard about this stuff. Um, and you know, the idea that an animal might be in the road is not totally a, a surprising concept, particularly if you look at safety statistics. Uh, the, the other thing that I would think about is that really a lot of those rare events, what it boils down to is not hitting the thing. Right, you know, it might look like a moose, it might look like a tree, it might look like a sparkly unicorn. Um, you know, it might look like any of these things, but at the end of the day, the goal is don't hit the stuff in the road. Uh, and so a lot, of that, a lot of that really boils down to something relatively straightforward.
0: Ashley, do you want to jump Sorry. in, or, or oh, oh, to, to Meredith, because this is really, Meredith, your point. You're, never is such a, a hard bar to prove. I mean, it's always hard bar to prove, but, so you're, but you really are staking out that ground.
1: I, I really am. I really am. Uh, and the because, optimism that you
0: hear from Chris does not... Uh, I mean,
1: one of the things that I, that I really like that Chris has said in the past uh, is, uh, Chris, you have a YouTube video where you talk about weird stuff that has been observed yeah. by the Google cars. Uh, and so there's a, there's a clip where you're talking about a woman in a wheelchair chasing a duck around the uh, around the street, and I thought, "Wow, that is a really great example of something that I never would have imagined that I needed to write code against if I were programming this car but the the category of things that happen in the world that you can't write code against is actually is really vast. And so you have cases like Uh, in Australia when the cars malfunction when faced with kangaroos, okay, because like yes, we can we can absolutely program against moose like we can program against North American land mammals and we can program against, you know, North American (laughs) birds But then we get to Australia and we're into the kangaroos and they're totally different And so humans are really flexible. We can update our mental models very quickly and easily And these kinds of things are not easy to update in code. They're actually very expensive All right,
2: so let me bring it up Sure. So I, I think this this debate is speaking to the difficulty in sometimes in seeing the future, even if as we're at the cusp of it. And I, this recalls to mind the there was a very in, there was a journalist named uh, Clifford Stoll who was a very respected columnist. But his career will forever be remembered by one unfortunate article that he wrote in 1995, where he said the internet's going to fizzle out and be completely meaningless. And I think it had such beauty, beautiful lines in it, like. Well, if e-commerce is going to be anything, how come my my mall does more business in an afternoon than the entire Internet does in a month? Or like, who wants to read a newspaper on a computer? So the fact that we can stem—it's always easy to now. In his defense, it's always hard to, to see these things in foresight. Hindsight's 2020. 20. But I think I really think that in 10 years from now, when we look back on when we look back on this, or in 10, 15 years when this is very this is this is mainstream, we're going to look back and think that it was obvious going forward. And it's being driven by very fundamental. Uh, very fundamental uh, advances in tech. The same amount of computation that costs a couple pennies today costs a thousand dollars in 2000 and a billion dollars in 1970, and so that's why when when we do we talk about image recognition, even since the Google self-driving car project has started, on the annual competition where where, where teams test their cutting-edge vision algorithms. Their error rates have improved by a factor of ten just over that time.
0: So, Amitai, are, are you are you suggesting that all problems, ultimately, almost all problems, ultimately, are solvable through technology? So,
2: technologies, technologies are tools, and they give us they give us tools to solve problems that weren't solved before. Okay, so I want I want to yeah. take that that note to
0: to Ashley Nunes, who's who's made the argument that there's just there's a socioeconomic problem that the that the if if indeed your team's argument that um, Artificial driverless cars have the ability to reduce income inequality by making these vehicles available to people who can't afford cars actually saying no That's not actually not true economically that people would be better off by keeping and owning Awful old cars because it cost will probably cost too much to hail one of these things and get in it if your income limited so actually respond to what Amitai is saying is this is a problem that can be solved because most of these problems can be solved.
4: Well, if I can just go back for one second. Um, sure. As a fellow Canadian, I certainly appreciate the importance of dealing with <laughs> Um That said, uh, I just want to go to Chris's point earlier where you talked about um, tremendous investment in the space. So I think there was a Brookings report in which they were talking about something in the order of about $80 billion. This is a bit, a bit of a pithy com- comeback, but what I would say is just because people are willing to invest in an enterprise doesn't mean the enterprise makes sense. And I think Theranos is a very, very good example of this. Um, <laughs> now, in regards to self... you want to remind people what Theranos is? Uh, yeah, it was a, essentially a, a biopharmaceutical company out in California that, for lack of a better word, was... A scam. A scam. Yeah. <laughs> um, that said, um, some of the So you your point is that the people who invested in it, a lot of people invested in it,
3: their investments did not prove that it was a good idea. Precisely. Okay. Uh, just to... We, tackle that point. And well, we 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 could di- digress here, but I think if sure. you look at the oversight of that company versus some of the oversight fair of the defense, there, that is a, little little a fair point.
4: Yeah, yep, fair enough. Yeah. Now, um, on the point regarding we can we can you know get the costs down. Um, I cannot dispute uh, Amitai's point. Um, if we look, if we think about uh, the first cell phone, for example, some of you might be old enough in the audience, probably not, to remember the first cell phone that looked a little bit like a brick. And I think, uh, at that time, a cell phone sold for about uh, $4,000. In today's dollars, it would be about 9000 And I doubt very much most of you have paid $9,000 for your cell phone. Well, some of you might have, I don't know. Um, That said, um, it is true that as technology gets better and as production volume increases, we can get the price down. But that's not really the comparison. The question isn't, can we get the price to be lower? The question is, can we get the price to drop so that it is competitive with what poor people, and indeed regular people, own today? And I, to date at least, have not seen any data that suggests you can get this technology to be cost-competitive with personal vehicle ownership.
1: So I think no, the last time no. that I, uh, um, last time I, 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 I Martha,
2: can you just Yeah, you? I'm happy to say, let me okay. jump in a little. But later. I'll come right back to you, I just okay. wanna right. hear from this side. Um, so I think we're ready, there's actually a ready-made audience that would enormously benefit from self-driving technologies, especially if it comes out as most technology, and most people in the field believe in shared fleets like Uber or Lyft. Today, the people, there's two income groups that use taxis the most. The richest group, as you might expect, who use it for convenience, and the poorest groups because they can't afford to own a car and therefore have to pay for taxis, even though taxis are more expensive. So those groups will benefit immediately with self-driving cars in a a fleet model. And that's already been borne out in what we've seen in Uber and Lyft. Um, There's... Their taxis are not available in most zip codes in, in Los Angeles and there was a study by University of California Davis that showed that 99.8% of Los Angeles can now get into an Uber or Lyft and they're including lower income populations and um, and black neighborhoods where taxis didn't want to go. So. That, that experience tells us that the fleet model reaches populations and income groups and gives them new alternatives that that opens possibilities that okay. they didn't right, have. Meredith.
1: So the last time I checked a LIDAR system, uh, which is the sensing system that was used on a lot of self-driving cars, uh, ran about $80,000. Uh, ju- so, so-,
3: so I think just two points to that. One, I think it's Factually incorrect. Uh, I, I think you, you, you can buy the these, last time I you, you checked. Know, you can. You can buy these for less, uh, right. but but also how much are they? Uh, a few thousand dollars. You can buy them for today, uh, and I think the the um, the other part of it is that we only make a few hundred to a thousand of these a year right now. Uh, you know, if I made if we were selling toothbrushes uh, and we made a hundred of them a year or a thousand of the year. They're going to be ten thousand
0: okay. dollars for a tooth. Let, but let's get back to Meredith's point. Sorry, I, you were interrupted, and I I interrupted you also when you wanted to speak. So this is your moment. Sorry okay. about
1: that. All right. So the last time I checked, they were fifty. Ashley, uh, Ashley and I were talking about it uh, over the weekend. Fifty uh, five hundred was the last. Uh, the last. And number and that we saw is you, that you, about get right? le- you can get less than that. Okay, so you yeah. can get it down But to the like order 5, of magnitude few, a okay. few thousand to single thousand. So here's something that I've I've been wondering about This is not a debate point, but this is a question What happens when you have these cars out on the road with these? Thousands of dollars of equipment and people want to steal the equipment off of them Because oh. I, I think a lot about the ways that you would defeat a self-driving car Okay, Uh, it's, you know. Uh, And so one of the things that you can do is you can do a lot of damage with a post-it note, okay? Because the self-driving car, uh, you know, it's it's designed to not hit things. So you can stand in front of it and it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, The Tesla, for example, uh, has these, like, really fun falcon wings. But if you're parked too close to... A road sign the falcon wings won't go up because the sensor is impeded so I thought well what if you went up to it with a post-it note all right put the post-it note over the sensor then the car can't move and then you can like rip off all of the who would
0: do that out. you mean a vandal yeah okay so your I don't know. your perceptions of humanity are oh, no, no.
3: Yeah. No,
0: there is vandalism. I'm, I'm I a journalist.
3: Yeah, I, and I'm, thinking, and I'm
0: a journalist, too, and I'm thinking, okay, I know, I know where you're coming from yeah. on this. but I, So let's bring it back to the real optimist on the stage, uh, Amitai. Um, you know, think, lovely, things like, sunny, things yeah. like, like, like what, what Meredith is talking about. Things like hacking in. To, I mean, people are hacking into automobiles, electronics already. Um, the, the, you would Im- imagine an expanded vulnerability. So these are all sound like serious challenges to the to the kind of positive vision that you're laying out there. And again, you might say everything's solvable in the end, but can you be more specific about that? Is it possible to be?
2: Well, uh, we're talking about cybersecurity and vehicle building uh, safe systems. I gotta defer to Chris here.
3: Yeah, and absolutely. So, you know, again, we, we think about somebody putting a post-it note on the car, and, you know, we, we'd certainly prefer it to not drive away rather than kind of faith-based drive off and, and hope it all works out. Uh, so, yes, we, we think about security. We think about these failure modes. Um, I guess I would just push back. I think, you know, if I look at the engine in my car, it's probably worth $1,000 or more. I think the transmission is. I think the tires in my car are probably worth a few hundred dollars. Um, this is kind of a thing that exists. Uh, and doesn't feel like an argument against self-driving cars. It, it, it is more of a, a discussion around our, our perception of humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Speak Again, uh, on, on the topic of humanity, n- nobody's really addressed yet. I, I found Meredith's point one that I didn't expect to come up, the notion of there being um, a sort of moral, uh, what was the term you used, a moral authority in public spaces such as buses and, and, and taxis. Um, and what you're really sort of saying is you don't want to be alone in a box that's, that doesn't have a human with that you can appeal men. to. It with strange men. Yeah. Um,
1: and I think so yeah, a lot of uh, women feel like this. Yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of us don't get into elevators late at night with, uh, with strange men. Uh, a lot of us will take uh, the... We won't do a rideshare, especially uh, when we're going home late at night or okay. you know, after being out at the bars because... Like, All right, it's a, really, it's a really interesting yeah. point. I want and to see this is what, something that men often don't think about.
2: Guys, so, did you, have you thought sure. about this? Yeah. yeah, so and I think this speaks to a very general trend in which uh, very frequently, broad trends in, in both uh, society and in technology outpace our ability to catch up with it. And the example that always comes to mind is in the mid-19th century, we had a very rapid urbanization and that really changed the social dynamics because no longer, right, you no longer went to the store and then uh, bought an egg, egg, your eggs from someone you trusted. So all of a sudden, the whole system of regulation grew up around preventing child labor, union rights, food safety, and that takes that that takes time. And I think that's going to emerge in the self-driving space. I think it's out the technology right now is outpacing um, some of the social systems that are needed to assure your safety when you're in, when you are that the, so some of these social contracts that govern how we we travel together in public spaces. But I think with investment in both the technological capabilities to provide social so cybersecurity and thoughtful approaches to governing those public spaces, I don't I don't see them as insurmountable obstacles. Actually, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Greg.
3: I was going to say, just to directly, I I think it's it's abhorrent, right? I think I think it's terrible that women feel that level of risk, and I you know I've talked to my wife, and she feels that too. I get it, but we didn't say we're not going to have elevators because of that. Um, right, we the, the technology is still incredibly useful and valuable uh, and the right answer is not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right, I think that there's incredible value we can still get from the technology and it means that we as a society have to be responsible for how do we introduce the technology in a way where we minimize those risks along with the other risks.
0: Ashley, can you take on your opponent's argument about the advantages of a driverless car world for the disabled?
4: Well, actually I, I, I want to tweak that just a second, Um, I I really have a problem with this term driverless um, because it conjures up the image that there is no one overlooking the technology and this is factually inaccurate. Through the history of mankind, through the history of mankind, there has never been a single instance, not one, where safety critical features have been designated to machines without any human oversight. There isn't a single example of this. Driverless, as I often say, does not mean humanless. So there is a human involved. The human is providing some oversight associated with it. Um, To your point about the impact on the disabled, uh, the consequences on the one hand are good because you have someone watching over that vehicle in case a disabled person, or any person for that matter, has uh, difficulty but there is a negative externality as well which is the minute you have an individual watching over a driverless car that's a cost my next question is very simple how many driverless cars or driverless cabs should one person watch because the only way the economics work is if you leverage economies of density and i've put this question before to you know, auto XX and no one will give me an answer. Can I
0: come to that question in a moment sure. after you answer the question about the impact on the disabled community? Because it seems huge. Uh,
4: it, absolutely. It, it absolutely has the ability to increase mobility uh, for a large swath of Americans and, indeed, individuals more broadly. Mm-hmm. But leveraging that benefit depends, once again, on cost. It okay. all comes down to cost. So
2: well, well, given that the average paratransit ride is 70 or $90, we should be able to, to do that better than that pretty easily. So um,
0: (laughs) after after this next round of questions, I want to go to audience questions. And the way that will work is please raise your hands. And when I call on you, a microphone will just wait for the microphone to come to you. And then if you could tell us your name, or at least your first name, and then you can ask your question. And please make sure it's really brief and on point, and gets them to debate with each other uh, even better than they are already. so, so Ashley's, Ashley was making the point that at some level, somebody needs to be, some individual needs to be sort of overseeing, the, in a sense, a kind of air traffic control system. Somebody's got to be there. And he asks the question, how, how, many, how many vehicles can a human keep track of and do that well and safely? Uh, what what I, I know, you probably don't know the exact answer to that question, yeah. or perhaps you do. But what are you so, looking at?
3: I, I think conceptually, I agree with the point. Right. Uh, f- first, I, you know, we I, I actually talk about self-driving vehicles. Or I talk about self-driving vehicles versus driverless vehicles because, right, this is really a technology about people, and you know, driverless implies we're getting rid of people. Um, uh, I think you're right that there will be some level of oversight. Uh, and I have a de- fairly high degree of optimism about the level of that oversight and the ratio. Exactly what the number is, I could make up something, but it would be meaningless. But the point is that it will not be one operator to one vehicle. Uh, it'll be one to many. Uh, and the key, really, the key insight here is that the technology is uh, avoiding bumping into stuff. And then at the point where we really need human-level intellect to support and kind of unblock the technology, that's where uh, the people engage, and that's at a relatively low rate.
0: Okay, I'd like to go to audience questions. Wow, a lot of people are interested. That's great. That's great. Um, Right here in the front. um, Second row, I mean to say. Yeah, sorry. And thanks for waiting for the microphone.
4: Hi, I'm Eileen Cowdery, UVA Darden School of Business. Um, fascinating
3: discussion. We had a case about the ethics of, of uh, driverless cars in one of our, our classes at school. And the conversation focused around scenarios where you have to delegate uh, an ethical decision or question to a driverless car um, or, or through the kind of the machine learning algorithms that are behind the car. So I'd love to hear you guys kind of push and pull a little bit on how, what are the pros of, of kind of Delegating those decisions to to a a computer or or cons and maybe through the lens of if a if a car has to make a decision of whether to save a driver and swerve into the path of of say you know a bystander someone a pedestrian or something like that who are who are the
1: winners and losers here
0: Meredith are you interested in in running with that question or sure. you, okay so I, I'd like to hear because I think you'll develop a little bit more of what that argument is and then let your opponents respond to it
1: sure so. Uh... I believe you're referring to the trolley problem, which is a classic uh, ethical dilemma uh, that we talk about in this realm of driverless cars. I think a couple of things about this. I think that uh, just focusing on the trolley problem... Let's tell
0: people very briefly, the trolley uh, problem is a scenario. It's sort of classical philosophy. Proposants in the 1970s talked about a lot. Charlie gets loose and is going down a track, and there's one, and the track divides, and on one side there's five people standing, and on the other side there's one guy standing, and somebody has his hand on the lever. He's got to make a decision: does he push the lever that kills five people or kills one people? No, I pretty much nailed it. Yep. So I'm guessing in the issue of the driverless cars, <laughs> is this thing going to be programmed if you're driving down a street and you see a small child? to run over the child or to smash into the tree that kills the driver sort right. of thing in an extreme situation which may or may not be realistic. Yeah. But
1: I'm going to smash into the tree in order to save the small child mm-hmm. because young lives are precious. Uh, I know that not everybody is going to make that same decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one mm-hmm. of the things that we have to do with Self-Driving Cars is program in uh, decisions around these kinds of issues. Uh, So I'm going to come at this a little bit sideways. I think that the people who are making these kinds of decisions are not necessarily the people who are best equipped to make these kinds of social decisions. Who do you think they are? The engineers who are building the code are not necessarily the best equipped. So a couple of things about this. Mm -hmm. Ethics has not been emphasized for an entire generation of engineers and software developers. Now, there are... Uh, ethics requirements in place in computer science curricula, but they have not been enforced. Uh, And in fact, we didn't start having a robust conversation about AI ethics and data ethics until the past couple of years. Uh, So I don't know that we have the necessary depth of experience, and I would also say that there's a kind of bias at work inside the tech community that I call techno-chauvinism. It's the idea that uh, technology is always a superior solution And I would argue that in something like the ethical realm, the human solution is actually superior. It's not actually a competition. And we should think about using the right tool for the task. And for driving, humans are actually a really good solution.
0: Okay. How um, time would you like to take? Sure. I'll, st- I'll start. That was, think- that was
2: such a long one. I'd like to give you both a crack yeah. at it. Sure. Um, I think there's the the there is an ethical dilemma at the heart of driverless drive uh, at the heart of self-driving cars, and that ethical dilemma is. how how much do you develop them in private settings before you deploy them to the public? So in other words, maybe at at some point soon they are safer than the average human driver, but, but at that point do you deploy them or do you wait? Well, the Rand Corporation, they did a study and they said, well, if you deployed as soon as they were safer than a human driver, and then use the, the fact that the cars would be on the road and gaining experience and would continue to save, over a 50-year period, you would save a million lives relative to holding back the cars till you were sure that they were close to perfect. So I think that is, you know, that is a, the big moral dilemma that I'm thinking about, and I know what side, what side I'm on. Um, I think spending time and energy on very artificial concocted solutions artificial situations where you have a uh, choice to either swerve and hit something at the last minute those very rarely come up and very rarely will the algorithm make the difference so i think we're going to be spending our energy thinking about the ethics the ethics need to be around the speed of deployment and how we build support for so, the, the right level so but,
0: so to follow on your point and bring it to chris uh, meredith is saying chris that out in silicon valley uh, the culture that you're We're, part of, there is no consideration. There's too little consideration yeah. given to ethical questions. And what's happening with driverless cars is a prime example of that.
3: Yeah, I, I, so I think the premise of that, I think, is, is, is a little unfair, right? It's painting a whole community with a, one particular brush. Um, so I, I guess I just go out. I, actually, I talk directly about the heart of the trolley problem. So first, there is no right answer. Right. This is not something like mathematics, where they're you know, 1 plus 1 equals 2. This is something where the right answer is really uh, a function of our society and our values, uh, and which life do we hold more precious or not. And so that is a space where I think the, uh, the government ultimately will have a voice, and in the interim we have to do our best to deal with these incredibly rare events. The other part of the question though, is a little, is a little, uh, uh, of the answer is a little flawed in that you know, the answer is, well, of course, I would swerve into the tree to avoid the child on the road. The problem is that in the instant that you have to make that decision, we have done studies. Reasoning does not get to that level. It doesn't get to a moral question. Something happens. And after that, you either have to live with it or you don't. You know, oh, my God, in that moment, I chose to run over a child. And that person's, that person's life is now, is now destroyed, along with the child. So I would argue that by taking this and having a deliberative answer, something where we know what the code paths are going to do uh, and how they're going to respond, we can communicate that at a minimum and say, this is the choices we think the system will make. Do you accept this? Rather than hoping that the right thing happens
4: in the instant.
0: Ashley, do you want to weigh in on this as well?
4: Sure, I thought we could. All right, Uh, quick show of hands, how many people here have a driver's license? Okay, for the people who are only listening to this podcast, it's, um, I'd say 99% of the room. Sure, Mm -hmm. Uh, and for those of you that have a driver's license, how many of you recall getting any form of training on whether or not to hit the, you know, hit the tree or hit the child on the road? Right. Less than 1% of the hands (laughs) have gone up. So so, so, so are you Uh, arguing
3: we, we shouldn't worry about this?
4: My point is that uh, this is a misnomer. Um, it, it's, an, it's a nice academic exercise to engage in, but no regulator would ever sign off on a system that prioritizes one life over another. It has never happened. It will probably never happen.
1: Yeah, I also don't want my kid out there uh, in a world where there are two-ton killing machines roving around that are programmed to kill children and save the driver. I mean, I'm not okay with that.
3: And and I think that that's a, you know, I tend to agree. I would like zero killing machines. Um, I'm I'm all for that. Um, But what you forget is that we have them. They are on the road today. Uh, We lose, as I said in my opening remarks, 1.3 million people globally, 40,000 people in the US. And we are looking at a technology that can drive that down dramatically. And so I think you just made my case.
0: (laughs) I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this resolution. All hail the driverless car. Right in the back there.
1: Hi, Stafford Palmieri. I'm with the New York City professional chapter, Brent Wharton. Um, There are some researchers at UC Davis that have done some research about the environmental impact of driverless cars, and their hypothesis is that driverless cars are going to decrease use of public transportation because now it will be easier for you to do work in a driverless car as opposed to taking the train or a bus. Um, I'd like to hear from the uh, panel. Uh, Do you believe that driverless cars will exacerbate environmental problems And if not, what evidence do you have that that will not occur?
0: That is such a perfectly
2: phrased question. Thank you for that. Let's take it first, Hamitai. Sure. So um, I'm very familiar with that UC Davis study, and there's one fact that I really want to point out. So what they did was they gave people a chauffeur for a week and recorded how much their travel changed when they got access to a free chauffeur for a whole week. And it's an interesting experiment, even though it's not clear how applicable it is. But the greatest increase in travel came from older people who went out on social occasions in the evening. So these were previously older Americans who were Homebound because they couldn't travel, especially at night. Because particularly at night, because the first the first the first um, way that you're driving goes is you can't drive at night. So some of that increased travel is going to come from people with disabilities or older people getting to uh, social opportunities and reducing their isolation. So I think that is in the border context. Let us know, that is a good that is a overall a really good thing. In terms of the environment. In terms of the environmental impact, we did a survey of every company that had a permit to test autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars in California. Over six around sixty percent were using electric vehicles, uh, were using electric vehicles as their platform. Another twenty something percent were using hybrids. Compare that. About, there's about less than 1% of the vehicles on our road are electric, only about 2 to 3% are hybrid. So that tells me that the vehicle of the future, the autonomous, the self-driving car, is likely to be an electric uh, electric car, and that's going to do a lot to help improve uh, the environmental outcomes.
0: Okay, let's let the other side respond. Either of you want to take on the environmental
4: question? Uh, well, I'll take Amitai's point um, Ashley, regarding uh, you know driverless cars providing access to disabled people. I wanted to come back on this. Companies aren't developing this technology to provide services to disabled people. They're, pr- they're developing this technology to make money. Um, and they will price their product um, at a rate that allows them to recoup the cost of capital. That's number one. Number two, in regards to the environmental benefits of driverless cars. If you think about a powertrain today, if you think about a vehicle, uh, it's about 55%. That number fluctuates a little bit. About 55% of, the, of a vehicle's fuel economy comes from the engine itself. Uh, about 45% comes from eco- what we would call eco-friendly driving practices, things like not hitting the gas when you're, you know, running up towards a red light, uh, things like that. Um, so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, unless you can guarantee that driverless cars will be electrified vehicles, which you can't, you absolutely cannot, um, realizing the environmental benefits of this technology, all else being equal, is, in my view. Um, P- perhaps not necessarily accurate. Be- very, beef beef. Com- very brief comment. The idea that
2: no one's developing self-driving cars to be accessible will be news to the owners of Ali, Keolis,
4: Navia, and Easy Mile, but all of whom develop accessible. They, they are, China but, but, China. That, but, but disabled communities are not their primary focus. They, they are developing the technology to market to different groups, but yeah. disabled communities are not their primary focus. I, I do think, though, that the rising tide will, will lift all boats. Fair enough.
3: Uh, I think just to the the point you make though, around the, the what I think you said, 45% of the fuel efficiency is due to the driver. Like, yes. Uh, uh, so, and, and a large fraction of the operating costs of the vehicles are due to fuel consumption. Yeah. And so it turns out that the economics and the environmentally good thing here are like perfectly aligned. We will build drivers that are fuel efficient because it makes more money, right? If you just want to believe capitalism. And that will mean we have a, the biggest impact, as you say, even more so than, than moving to electric. Let
0: go to Stephen. And one
1: more about question. The, uh
0: Oh, if you you were making a point, I can let you finish it. So
1: something about uh, the driverless taxi uh, is important to note. Uh, One of the things that uh, driverless cars are not going to be good at is, uh, well, cities and parking. Let's think about cities and parking. Uh, We already don't have enough parking spots in cities for the human drivers. So if we have driverless cars that are taking up the parking spots. Well, we don't want that. Obviously, people are going to be mad. So the idea that I've heard is that the driverless cars will just circle while they're waiting for the next ride, which seems to obviate any environmental Well, that seems a solvable
0: problem by saying that's against the law.
1: Right, but where are they going
2: to go? Where are they going (laughs) to (laughs) go? Are you answering this? Sure, so I think what's been really what's, what's been, there's been a, some really amazing work um, coming out of Princeton University that shows that if we were to serve people with with um, self-driving cars and taxis and, and self-driving taxis, we could reduce the amount of cars that we needed to own by 90% and still be able to meet every single trip that people need to meet so I think we're going to have a lot less cars because we're going to have cars serving multiple people multiple trips and that's going to cause, and, the, and so I think that's going to help reduce the problem and then we're going to have policies, just like part of the, way, the reason why people don't drive into Manhattan is because of the cost of parking. That cost is going to be passed to self-driving cars who just want to circle around the streets, so it's going to be economically optimal for them to relocate to a place where their presence doesn't bother other people.
0: Okay, we, I can take a 15-second, a question it will only take 15 seconds to really ask. I'm going to trust you. Right there. The clock starts right now.
4: Yeah, so the most of this seems like it's revolved around um,
2: cars, autonomous cars working with people driving them. Do you think, what are your thoughts on things having to go all autonomous or it seems like that'd be easier than cars working with people, if that makes sense.
3: Um, Yes. So I think what you're asking is, you know, if we could get all the human driven cars off the road in one day and we had self-driving cars, would that make, frankly, my life easier. Uh, The adoption, yes, it would. Um, But it turns out we are not going to do that, right? There's an install base and we have to think practically how we introduce this technology. And so that means it will be the most difficult to introduce early on. And then over time, you know, uh, this will be a spiral that will help bring cost out to it, out of the technology and help serve more people. Last word from the side.
1: So something that I am really excited about uh, is not self-driving cars, but I'm excited about self-driving tractors <laughs> because I feel like with self-driving tractors there's nobody around for them to kill. and I feel like that's a really good application of the technology. However, it's not very popular because it's not a huge money maker. Uh, so I would just I would urge everybody to kind of think differently about the uh, about the the future forecast around self-driving cars and take into account techno-chauvinism and say, what could possibly go wrong? And there's a lot of things that could.
0: And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared US debate where our resolution is all hail the driverless car. And in a moment, we're going to ask you to vote a second time to tell us which, uh, which side you found most persuasive. But first, we're going to hear closing statements from each of the debaters. These will be two minutes each. Making his closing statement in support of the resolution, all hail the driverless car. Here is Amitai Benun, regulation expert
2: and vice president of autonomous vehicles at Safe. Thank you very much for your time. I think we've heard arguments over the last hour. Some of our, our opponents have. Uh, suggested that autonomous vehicles either won't work well or they may be limited as luxuries or they're mainly convenience plays for the rich. Well, history abounds with arguments in advance of new technologies that don't fully foresee how they are used and that we often don't – hindsight is twenty-twenty, so we don't fully see the impact before it happens. And I always come back to the story of cell phones. In the late 1940s, AT&T wanted to start start deploying a cell phone network, and the government wouldn't allow it. It said cell phones are only going to be for the rich, it's only going to be for convenience, it's not really going to work. Instead, what we'd like to do is reserve the spectrum for several thousand new TV stations, because that's what people need. there weren't several thousand TV, there were never several thousand new TV stations, and cell phone networks were not permitted until the, until the early 1980s, and we all know what happened from there. Make no mistake, self driving cars will change our transportation system, and they will change people's lives for the better. History shows, though, that compelling technologies can be delayed if the public, is, public doesn't fully understand its potential and that doesn't help draw the technology. So I am encouraged that polls show that already 50% of people are very interested in getting into self-driving cars. However, I am asking for your help because we cannot afford to wait another 30 years or delay by 30 years the safety and accessibility benefits of self-driving technologies. So let's not make myopic decisions that don't reflect what the real potential and excitement of this technology is. So I ask for your vote to hail the self-driving car. Thank you, Amitai Ben-Nun.
0: And now to speak um, against the resolution, all hail the driverless car. Here is Ashley Nunes, senior researcher at Harvard Law and MIT.
4: So uh, our opponents have spoken very eloquently about the ability of this technology to save lives. Governments agree, investing billions of dollars to give us what we want, the self-driving car. But I propose there is another way. We could, for example, use existing public policies to save lives. We could take a no-tolerance approach to drunk driving something that has been shown to reduce road fatalities by as much as 18%. We could lower speed limits, something that according to the WHO has been found to lower road fatalities by as much as 30%. And, quite frankly, we could simply ask people to buckle up, something that has been shown to reduce road fatalities by as much as 50%. I acknowledge these measures aren't necessarily the most eye-popping, the most catchy, but they work. And ultimately, as stewards of the public purse, our commitment should be to what we need, not what we want. On that basis, I ask you to vote against the resolution. Thank you, Ashley Nunes. And that resolution again... All hail the driverless
0: car, and here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution, Aurora co-founder and CEO,
3: Chris Ermson. So I'm going to take a moment and talk uh, about someone, Stephen Fletcher. Uh, he's the brother of the guy who was the best man at my wedding, the best friend of mine in high school and college. Uh, Stephen, Canadian, geological engineer, uh, was driving to a mine in northern Manitoba one morning uh, and hit a moose. Uh, and uh, he became a quadriplegic uh, in that moment. Uh, since then, he has had an incredible career. Uh, He's been a cabinet minister in the Canadian government. Um, but every day he is burdened by that challenge of getting from, simply getting from one place to another. So for someone like Steven and the rest of our most, uh, most disenfranchised, frankly, people, this is a technology that we just cannot live without, whether it would have saved them on that day or whether it would given them the freedom today. My son, one of my, my oldest son is in the audience today. He's 15 and a half. Um, basically, last time he rode his bicycle for real, uh, he rode into a trash can and crashed and broke his wrist. Um, he's about to get a driver's license in six months. Uh, and he is—he is a smart, thoughtful, intelligent young man. But if you look at the statistics for people like him, it's terrifying as a parent. And so, if we can introduce technology that will allow us to not have to have that horrible conversation experience in our lives, that's profound, profoundly important. Now, the arguments that our opponents have made, and they've made them eloquently, are fundamentally that this is hard that it is hard to build the technology, that it's going to be hard to build a business around this, that it's going to be hard to do it right. Well, I would quote John F. Kennedy, uh, that we built the self-driving technology not because it is is easy, but because it is hard. Because the challenge is one we are willing to accept, and we're unwilling to postpone. The status quo is completely broken, ladies and gentlemen. All hail the driverless car. Thank you, Chris
0: Ermsson. And our final speaker will be speaking against the resolution, data journalist and author, Meredith Broussard.
1: I want to talk about safety and I want to talk about race. Now, we have heard a lot of very eloquent arguments uh, that driverless cars will improve safety. And I've, I've heard this, uh, I've heard the same statistic about safety repeated over and over again. On uh, John Krawstek's uh, LinkedIn page, he had this statistic, 95% of traffic accidents are caused by humans and driverless cars are going to reduce this. And then I saw the same statistic repeated on a National Highway Transportation uh, Safety Administration page. And I looked at who had made that statistic. And it turns out it was a statistic that was created by a government contractor. And that contractor was a subsidiary of an organization that makes uh, unmanned drones for military use for the U.S. government. And this was making the argument for driverless cars. So we have a government contractor who stands to profit dramatically from the introduction of autonomous vehicles, who also stands to profit substantially from the adoption of autonomous autonomous technology in military use, who is concocting the justification that the government is using for implementing self-driving cars. And I think that we need to look closely at that. I think we need to look closely at who is telling us that this is making a safer world. And I think we need to look at what kind of profits are they going to reap from us believing this? And then I also want to talk about race, because race is a factor in image recognition. Our image recognition systems have a lot of the same blind spots that humans do, because humans embed their own biases in the technology that they make. And so we have things like soap dispensers that don't work for people with darker skin. All right, you can look online, there's a video of the racist soap dispenser. All right, and this scales up, it scales into facial recognition systems, which are better at recognizing men with light skin They're better at recognizing men than they are at recognizing women. They're better at recognizing people with light skin than they are at recognizing people with darker skin. And then I want to think about... Meredith,
0: I just want to ask you to to find a way to wrap. Sure.
1: Let's think about the way that this technology, because all the technology shares the same cord, let's think about the way that it scales up into self-driving cars, and let's think about what is likely to happen. Who is going to get hit by self-driving cars and who is going to suffer as a consequence of having these things on the road. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Meredith Broussard. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared US debate, and now it's time to learn which side you feel has been most persuasive. We're going to ask you again to go to your mobile phones and go again to the URL iq2us.org forward slash vote and to cast your second vote. You'll again find instructions on the screen right there uh, and also in your programs. So, um, while you're doing that, one thing I wanted to say is it's our goal, uh, as I said at the beginning, to encourage a robust debate, but in a respectful and civil way. And um, I, bu- I just want to congratulate the debaters for for, for for hitting that goal today. You know, and also this thing about, this, it's such a cliched, facile statement to always be saying that Canadians are really polite, but then it turns out to be true on a debate <laughs> stage. So. So you, there was a, a lesson in civility and decency from, uh, from from you guys, actually from all four of you. So I want to congratulate you for the way that you conducted this debate. Thank you so much. And I wish we had time for more questions because the questions today were great. Uh, and I can't always say that that's the case. This was a great crowd with great questions, and they were really phrased. Every single one was really was really nailed. So thank you for that. Um, while we're waiting for the results to come, I just wanted to ask one question that didn't come up in the substance of the debate. This is not, the competition is over, but I'm just curious. There was an economic argument, and I thought, I thought perhaps it would come from you, Ashley, or an economic concern about the impact on um, people who will lose their jobs if we go to a world where fewer and fewer drivers are driving cars, um, not only, <clears throat> obviously, the, car, the taxi drivers and the truckers. but the the roadside restaurants and the car repair shops and the insurance industries, there would be such an incredible disruption. Is that, to this side, is that an argument against hailing the driverless car?
4: Um, So I will side with Amitai on this one. Um, I do not believe so. Um, In fact, I think that the estimates uh, suggesting people will, you have have this wide scale job loss are completely overblown. Um, That's my personal view. I'm a contrarian, but but the available evidence suggests um, it will not come to pass. Uh
2: And yeah, so we've done a, so we've done a major study and in fact, one of the authors is in the audience, Professor McDuffie from Morton. Um, so and right so the 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 Bad news is that yes, like just like every other technology in the history of humanity, it changes how we do work and it changes the nature of jobs and people may lose and people will lose their job as technology comes in. But the good news is that it happens on a gradual rolling basis. We're talking over a 20 to 30 year period, so that means that with the right set of policies and the right investment, this is something that's very manageable. And um, so rather than you know panic and try to put the brakes on the technology, which won't succeed in saving those jobs, but it would only damage our ability to bring the technology to market, let's hail a self-driving car and work to uh, forestall I
4: mean, the voting is
2: over. It's- <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the zone. <laughs> Meredith, is it a concern of yours? Th-
0: this impact? Uh,
1: I, I do think a lot about job loss and mm. automation. I, I, I think there's a lot of fear mm. around, uh, around automation. You mean exaggerated fear? Um, or well, I mean, it's sometimes it's justified and sometimes it's not. Uh-huh. I think it—it just—it really depends. I'm, I'm
0: interested in Chris, your take on it, because I've yeah. moderated a number of panels on this question, uh, more broadly about artificial intelligence. But um, the, the, the charge that's often laid at the feet of Silicon Valley, as seen uh, rightly or wrongly, as the driver of the innovation that would be disruptive in this way, is that the engineers just don't really care because they have, not that they don't care actually, they're not worried because they they think that more opportunity will come out of the technology that can't be imagined
3: yet. Is that your take on it? So yes and no. Mm -hmm. So I think it probably came across that I am an optimist, right? Mm -hmm. And I I see the opportunity and benefit of this technology. At the same time, I worry acutely about this and it's great to hear people that actually understand economics and, and broader strokes of history talk about it because I think that um, if you look at the series of innovations that have happened, happened over history in terms of industrialization, with each one of them, there has been a massive disruption. Uh, and for the people that went through that, it was very difficult. Uh, and then, yet, if we look back, there's not one of them that I don't think we would have wanted and that didn't ultimately benefit society as a whole. And I think the challenge that's before us as, as a community, as a society, as a nation, as a world is. Um, how do we manage that transition to help people through it? Uh, and maybe maybe we don't have to. Maybe it just magically all works out. But I, I'm not that deep a believer in capitalism. I think we, we need to find ways to build social nets and, and help folks, folks transition through this. OK. Um,
0: I want to just share a little bit about uh, for f- folks who are in New York City about some of our upcoming debates. Um, we're doing one actually next Thursday and it's really uh, quite fascinating and something I didn't know a lot about until I started preparing for the debate. It addresses an issue of climate change through the practice of what is called solar geoengineering. And this is a, a a a set of technologies that are more than on the drawing board and past the conception stage where scientists are working on the idea of reflecting sunlight away from the earth as a way to address climate change and to cool global temperatures by such means as putting mirrors out in space and injecting aerosols into the atmosphere to create a sort of almost like a kind of sunblock effect and putting reflective roofs on all of the buildings in the world and these are uh, ideas being developed by serious people and our resolution is phrased engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea and so we have uh, two debaters who are gonna say it sure is and two debaters who are gonna come on and explain why they think that it's not. So uh, tickets for that are on sale and we're doing it uh, not far from here over at Hunter, uh, at the K Playhouse at Hunter College. So we'd love to join. have you join us. Um, and in the coming months we'll be debating the state of the transatlantic alliance. We'll also be looking at China's military strength and the question of whether hate speech should be allowed under the principle of free speech. You can learn more about all of our debates uh, and buy tickets to our debates at our website, uh, www.iq2us.org, and you can do that now. I'm going to announce the results in just a minute and then I'm going to uh, finish uh, the debate and when that happens can you please stand by uh, because Greg is going to come back on the stage with some words to say to you. But we're going to move forward now and reach our conclusion. And so I now have the final results. Remember you voted before you heard the arguments and again after you heard the arguments. Our victory goes to the team whose numbers move up the most between the first and the second vote. So let's look at the first vote. In the first vote, on the resolution, all hail the driverless car. 67% agreed with the resolution, 18% were against it, and 15% were undecided. In the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution Their first vote, again, was 67%. Their second vote was 88%. They pulled up 21 percentage points, which is the number to beat. The team against the resolution, their first vote was 18%. Their second vote was 10%. They lost 8 percentage points. That means the team arguing for the resolution, all hail the driverless car, named our winners. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time.